Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, we bring you the Dewing Grain market report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's market report. Welcome to the market report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decisions to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 20th of January 2020. I might sound a little bit rough today because I'm recording this the day after the Norfolk dinner, which I've got to say went as well as we could have ever have hoped. And we've had some fantastic messages of support and encouragement. And it seems that the change of venue and the dynamic of the dinner being revamped a bit worked. Certainly having everyone in one lovely big hall, it was almost boss-like in its context. And people were able to chat and meet. And uh, uh, yeah, we're really pleased with how it went. And uh, just feeling a little bit tired, we'll call it, today. Let's start with oilseed rape, which has had a right smacking due to the palm oil price collapse. Old crop is down to 330. Um, if you remember Webby's magical predicted price, it, it's been £10 higher. It's now come back down again. Uh, we're not particularly unfriendly to rape on new or old crop because there are fundamental problems with supply. And on new crop in particular, which, which currently harvest values are also 330, which is also down. The little blighters, the flea beetle, are still alive. There's been no cold. They're walking around eating things still. So until we get some cold weather, which doesn't seem to really be coming, I'm afraid that's going to be an ongoing problem. So rape is going to continuously have production problems as we see it. But prices in the immediate short term have been lower. Moving on to feed barley, there's been a bit of life in the old crop market. With the firmness in the feed wheat price, there's a few more consumers come on and found a way of using some more barley. And I understand there's another boat or two been traded. So X farm values ranging somewhere between 123 and possibly 125X. Might be a bit more life in that yet, but it's uh, it's a famous commodity for dying on its feet somewhere around about May time. I've, I've said this previously. So at the moment, there's plenty of buyers about. The price is marginally better than harvest was but I don't think it's ever going to go to the moon so I, I think uh, some point in the in the spring 125 or uh, 125 plus is a get rid of it and sell it job. Harvest barley prices technically are way too low relative to wheat but you know I, I said I think last week or the week before why on earth would anyone like me want to buy it haul it into a store store it and then haul it out of a store when the, the the export market kind of doesn't dictate that um, we can make any money out of doing it. So technically there's some buyers into consumption for harvest, which is, I don't know, 125 or plus X farm. But from a storekeeper's perspective, there is no point in going through that exercise. So feed barley, we'll wait and see whether you lot plant spring barley or not, because uh, as you know, the uh, drought is now broken and we have rain every 15 minutes. And yet again, last night, as we left the uh, dinner, it was raining. And uh, this morning, the, the roads are covered, the fields are wet, and we're all feeling a bit grumpy about it. I understand we've got one day of sunshine tomorrow. Yippee. Uh, wheat has been really buoyant. There's one or two um, of our competitors who are doing the crazy thing and paying up quite a lot on farm. I mean, there's some very, very aggressive ex-farm prices out there. We're being a little slouchy on that, and um, I apologise if we're not paying top dollar always. 
we have to try and read the market and try and perceive which way we think it's going. We aren't in a position where we're short, uh, where we need to buy wheat, so we don't have to chase it. And um, one or two people who've made commitments to consumers expecting farmers to give them plentiful supply in, in January... Well, they haven't had plentiful supply, so they're now chasing their tail. And there have been some pretty hefty prices going forward. Uh, We've even heard someone paying futures price for May wheat ex-farm this morning, I'm told. Whether that's a spoof or not, I don't know. But um, when it gets to May, in my opinion, most merchants' books are exceptionally long of wheat. We've got a long position in May. It's, It's never a secret. That's a month that farmers like to sell for. So if there's a surplus of grain already on merchants' books... I don't expect the price to be paying, you know, certainly the same as futures for that month, ex-farm. I see there being a liquidity uh, in the market, lots of grain coming forward that physically, contractually has to move. Therefore, there will be more sellers than buyers. So someone paying futures price, I think, is um, relevant today, but I don't think that's where we'll be in, in three months' time. Now, will the price be higher anyway, because the futures and everything's gone up as well, is another another debate. I see the king decision-maker of that being the new crop, uh, potential ongoing disaster with planting. Uh, if it doesn't get in the ground in the next two months, then I'm afraid the price of everything's going to go up. But if it does get in the ground, then there isn't any other reason why old crop wheat which is a surplus, uh, is going to go up. It is going to be a commodity that has to come down in value unless it's led by new crop upwards. So current value for us for May is about 152. And if the the story we heard about X-Farm 155, which is futures price as I speak, then we're going to get blown out of the water. So um, whether anyone's trading at that level is another question. That's the the other problem uh, for the trade is that there isn't the engagement from the farmer, they kind of aren't really fussed whether they sell it or not. They're not under any pressure. They feel quite reasonably well off. They feel grumpy about new crop. But right now, with a surplus of old crop, they're actually quite comfy. Um, new crop, X-Farm November today, 159, 160 area. Those are good prices in a normal year. This isn't a normal year. Will you get... A normal yield, will you get 20% off your normal yield? And if you do get 20% off your normal yield, what is the break-even price? You know, if your break-even price is 120, then 150 becomes your normal price with a 20% yield drop. Most people don't know whether they're coming or going on that. That isn't the key factor that fixes the price because the rest of the world can influence that by producing a a surplus somewhere else to push our prices down. And there was lots of talk at the, the dinner last night about... I had three flour millers telling me they were talking about buying German milling wheat. Well, that's a sure sign they haven't done it yet. But if they are talking about it, they're probably beginning to negotiate it. So the milling premium might be undermined by our glorious farmer supporting flour millers. Or the other thing that's being talked about is import of corn against the value of new crop feed wheat. We creep up in price and corn stays pretty buoyantly around the same level. A few cargoes of corn being bought means that we don't have to produce as much wheat. There is something replacing it. So it kind of does put the saucepan lid on. Anyway, that's where we're at today. I hope I don't sound too dopey. And yeah, I hope you have a very good marketing week. And I really hope it stops raining. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Hey. This is an advertising space. Reach hundreds of leaders of agriculture, mostly in Norfolk, by advertising here. It's surprisingly good value. 
If you're interested in finding out how much, email us hello at tinshedproductions.co.uk. Much, much cheaper than any local newspapers and straight into the ears of your potential customers. This week, we have a science feature farm chat with producer Claire. Here I am with Dr. Brian Rigney, who's a scientist at the Two Blades Group, part of the Sainsbury's Lab in Norwich. So I was wondering, I mean, I know you come from actually a farming background, don't you? That's correct, yes. Was that a bit of an influence? Yes, it was. Um, for me, growing up, I grew up on a dairy farm. And um, I've always been interested in what breeding stock we use on a yearly basis with my father. And it was from that then I got interested in breeding for different traits in, in cattle. And when we started to have a few crops in the field, I was always involved in what crops we used and why we were using them. Had they any traits that, we, that were resistant for a particular reason? And uh, in schools then I was also interested in science and biology. So I saw the two of them come interacting quite quickly and um, from there then I went into focus on biology and into science and I uh, got my degree then in uh, crop science and biotechnology and then continued up through the ranks of a master's and a PhD and now in the Norwich, uh, the Two Blades group, uh, continuing my work uh, this time focusing on soybean. Focusing on soybean, yes. okay. And so just tell me a bit about Two Blades to start with, because that's part of the Sainsbury's group, is that right? So we're a research group that's embedded in the Sainsbury lab. Uh, we're a non-for-profit organisation. Uh, when we see the, the, the great science that's going on, that, that, but we don't always see it going straight to the field. So the Two Blades Foundation supports a research uh, and science uh, topics for disease resistance in particular. So we can, and with our industrial partners, we can see, hopefully see all these traits going directly to the field. So with the current projects that are in Norwich, we have a project on soybean and we have a project on maize. And we're teamed up with Bayer to bring these directly to the field in the coming years in the US and in Brazil. Just to sort of explain a bit more about what you're doing with the soybean, what's your kind of research on that? In Brazil at the moment, there's a pathogen, a rust pathogen, that uh, back in 2003, it started to become out of control. In the early noughties, you could spray once or twice for a fungicide and control this rust pathogen. But as the years have gone by, and nowadays in the last growing season, the farmers in Brazil are spraying up to seven times a year, wow. a season, to control wow. this pathogen. And there's no natural resistance for this pathogen in soybean, in the current cultivars that are out there. So we started looking at other species. So we saw that there's other legumes crops being grown beside the soybean, and they're not infected. But right. yet we know that these should be infected. So we're looking through all these other diverse legume species and seeing can we identify the traits that give these the resistance. And once we have that, then we hand over our trait then to Bayer to breed it into their germplasm and, and release it. Oh, wow. And have you had any success yet? Yeah. Back in 2016, we patented our first trait, our first gene, and that gene is, uh, has been released. And it's hopefully we should see it in Brazilian fields in the coming years. Okay, fantastic. I wonder if you can tell me the difference between gene editing and gene modification. Okay, so with gene editing, you're talking about like, so using CRISPR-Cas9, which is a, an enzyme that's used to cut or to take out pieces of DNA. Oh, okay. Whereas the old uh, perceived uh, GM technology would have been the likes of putting a gene into something. And that's done to... That there's two forms. There's trans-modification and there's cis-modification. So... The cis modification is likes to take a trait from one potato and putting it into another potato. Right. 
there's no cross species jumping and that's something that the two blades have funded and we have crates that are going to being deployed uh, in the US and then there's trans gene editing which is taking the likes of the bacterial gene for BT which is a insecticide that's used widely in the US and putting that into a species like cotton for ah, example I see right so that's coming from a completely different completely different species um, right. yeah and there's been a little bit of chat, hasn't there, about what might change rules-wise in the UK now that we're kind of coming out of Europe. And I understand, is that gene editing rather than gene modification? Or? So gene editing is the, is the current technology that's more favourable to past regulations because it's just an, uh, taking something out that's already there. Right. You're not adding um, something that could cause a problem. You're just taking out something that is being recognised by a pathogen. Right. Like, can you give us an example of, of something where you're removing something? For example, there is uh, pepper varieties out there that have traits that are perceived by the pathogen. And these are recessive traits. So if we can start removing these recessive traits, the pathogen can no, no longer perceive what's going on in the plant, and therefore the plant is resistant. And so what do you think the chances are that, that gene editing might be allowed now? I think the conversation needs to be discussed. It, can, it needs to be discussed more. And I think the the real news or the real data needs to be shown to people. There's a lot of scaremongering and science has got a lot safer. We've got a lot better in the last 30 years when the first uh, GM technology came to light. And do you think that it would change your role and what your institute's doing if that law was changed? No, we continue. So within the Sainsbury lab in general, we study plant microbe interactions. So we'll continue to, to do that. But instead of having a focus on the, the Americas where GM is, is accepted, we can now focus on uh, more local and more regional varieties. So we can look at your UK-based wheat varieties, your malting barleys, uh, and your oilseed rapes. Yeah, so that w- that's what would happen if we got gene editing kind of thing. Yeah, through. I mean, I yeah. know, for example, uh, with oilseed rape, you've got a lot more seed dressing and insecticides being removed off the market. But yet you're competing against the Ukraine where all these insecticides are allowed. Right. So if we were allowed to, in a way, level the playing field and bring in these traits into into uh, oilseed rape, I think it would be huge beneficial. Um, if we're going to uh, not export as much, if we're going to keep things in-house and, and if we're going to have a trade deal with the US uh, and in the US as GM, okay. So I don't see a, a big issue at the moment, but a, a conversation does need to start. Yeah, and do you think there could be a problem with us then trying to sort of trade with Europe if we're allowing gene editing and they're not? Yes, that could be an issue. But I think the scientists are not even need to come forward and show the data. And not, the, not the companies that are forcing what they should use. I think people should start to see, coming to the institutes and seeing what's going on from the people that are doing it. For example, I mean, you have your, uh, your cotton. It's, in the US, it's, it's, it's GM. But yet people don't have any problems wearing your jeans or your shirts. Right. Uh, your cheese nowadays is made from GM bacteria, so and a lot of medicine is, is GM. Really? Yeah. Right. So technology has been used uh, without us knowing it. It's just that when we see fresh produce, like so potatoes coming forth that are GM modified, people start to get worried. Right, yeah. Uh, growing up on a dairy farm, we, we do feed our animals cereals and grains. And if you look at the packages, even in the UK, they use soy and we use corn. And these are all GM. They're all imported from the US or, or, or Brazil. And it's a huge disadvantage to UK farmers to compete uh, with these farmers uh, that are using these additive genes. 
And I'd like to level the field and say, start using those traits here. And so you have no worries over GM crops? No, no, I have no issues. Uh, it's heavily regulated. I'm, I'm not asking it to, or not suggesting it to be deregulated completely. Um, just start, at least start the conversation nowadays, how it should be used and for what crops. Um, it's been used in the US for over 20 years now, and there's no negative effects coming back from it. And we're using it, and we're importing those cereals and grains here. I want to ask you about soybeans because I know that kind of a big breakthrough would probably be to be able to grow those in the UK. Do you think that would be a possibility ever? Oh yes, uh, I think there is in some instances we are growing soybean in the UK um, but we just don't get the same yield or the same uh, quality as the likes of the Americas do. But if the market was to open up for soybean uh, in the UK I can't see any reason why it wouldn't uh, start to compete against the Brazilians or the Americans. So you think the climate would allow it to be able to grow fairly efficiently? Oh yes, uh, it's it's been grown in, in Europe uh, for for years. It's just an economical factor, and a financial factor does not make it viable to grow. It's just, it's still cheaper nowadays to import it from across the world than to grow it here. I see, I see. What do you think over the next sort of ten years will be the sort of big changes that we're going to see in crop modification in the UK? Well, if you look at the current trends in the news nowadays, you see everybody going vegan and plant-based diets. And I'm a meat eater, and I have no problem with this happening. But if we start growing lots of plants, and only the one species in the field, then we're going to see a lot more disease coming up. So the likes of GM has the answer to, to combat this and prevent this becoming an issue. Um, organic means the yields are not there comparative to commercial growing. And in some cases, organic farming, they use heavy metals, which is toxic to the environment. Um, There's no one answer, um, but I think GM technology uh, in the future will help out, uh, especially with land uh, becoming scarcer and the climate's changing. Um, We can ensure that we have a a good yield, uh, pest-free. And so what does your dad think about what you do science-wise? He's excited what I do, um, but being honest, I, I... he probably doesn't understand it completely. Right. And I think that's the trend in general. He's yes. In, he, <laughs> He's not alone there, yeah. is he? <laughs> no. Uh, he sees GM technology, sees, I've talked to many farmers even here, and they're all excited about it. But no one's going to be the first to take it forward, and nobody wants to do it if nobody wants to buy it. Right. Yeah. Um, but at the moment in dairy, there's no, GM is not a, a, a topic that's discussed. Um, right. We have permanent pasture swords of grass. So there's no GM being used there, and I don't see grass being a GM crop. Yeah, so GM wouldn't really make an impact on the sort of dairy industry? Not at present, no. I can't, see, I can't even see at present uh, GM cows coming at thing. I think the different varieties of bovines that we have out there, I think it's sufficient enough to meet the market needs. And what work going on at the Sainsbury's lab are you most excited about other than your own? For me, it would have to be the work from Jonathan Jones' group. Uh, he's doing a lot of work on potatoes. And he has a separate uh, industrial partner uh, in the U.S. And we see those traits going uh, directly to the field at present. Wow. So he has traits for late blight resistance and um, he's some other neat uh, res- traits as well. So soft potatoes get bruised when they're harvested. Oh, really? Yeah. So if, there are less, if there's less bruising, there's less rotting and there's less discard. Yeah. And then there's other traits such as, um, so when you peel a potato, it goes black after time. Yeah. So these are traits that are put in to stop them from going black. Oh. So for processing, it's they can stay longer 
fresher for longer. But a lot of the work what we do in the Two Blades Foundation is, is key. We've we've worked with Brenda Wolf, we have worked with um at the Gianna Centre and we have various other projects around the world looking at key crops such as your your wheat and your soybean, your corn and your rice. But your love is still potatoes a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Uh being Irish and uh, it, it always comes back to the potato. Um, but the potato, unfortunately, is overlooked um, when it comes to crop importance. Oh, the humble potato. Why is it overlooked? It's always got a bad name. It's been a, a huge calorie plant and people are gone off that and they're gone into your pastas and your rices. And it's the misuse uh, of what potatoes are used for. Uh, in my PhD, I, I got to not only to see all the different varieties, but how varieties work for different uh, cooking techniques right. not every flavor ma- will make a good chip or, or, or fry or good for mashing right so i think people just using in the wrong context has given people a, a, dif- a distaste you know what there's farmers all over norfolk using the wrong potato for the wrong thing because they're like i know a lot of people who they've got a whole store of potatoes and mm. they just go and collect them obviously for supper or whatever boil it up and it just falls to pieces because obviously it's been made for chipping and you're so, like oh. <laughs> yeah, so in ireland we have i think the market is 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 full of only one variety so we call it, it's called rooster so it's a, a red potato and it's made for bo- boiling right but uh, for our other markets, for your chipping, for your salads, for processing, yeah. uh, other varieties have to be used. And farmers are not growing them because everybody wants to just eat the rooster. Right, right. It's, it's something that I've grown up with. I couldn't. But in my PhD, I got to see that there's other varieties out there and they're, they're just as nice. The Anya, the Charlotte, all of those getting a little bit of a name. The Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's lots. So is the rooster still your favourite or have you got any other sort of... Uh Yes, uh, when I'm back home, the, the rooster is uh, is the one I go to the shop to buy. While here in the UK, rooster is, is available. Right. Um, but I, I like my red alternatives, such as your Desiree. But again, depending on what I'm cooking, uh, I go for my, my whites if I'm doing a bit of baking or, or chipping. So you didn't think you were going to get a potato um, <laughs> kind of lesson as well, did we? Um, okay, well, thank you very much for coming and chatting mm. with us and all the best for your science. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewandgrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewandgrain. The Dewandgrain podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio. 